Hello everybody and welcome back to the Line of Vienna Sweet Podcast episode 100. My name's Will Jones and what a lineup we have for you tonight. Firstly, joining me tonight is our very own Chris Madden. Hello Chris. Hi Will, how's it going mate? Brilliant, thank you. Good, good, yeah. Good. Uh, also joining is recent Line of Vienna re-recruit down the money road, Tom. How are we Tom? Evening, we alright? Yeah, great, great, thank you. Um, and also on is returning special guest, Mark Hiles. Hello, Mark. Evening. How are you? Um, yeah, not too bad, thank you. And last but not least, it's none other than the legend himself, Super John McGinley. Hello, John. Good evening, guys. Evening. Pleasure to have you on. I'm not going to lie, I'm, re- I'm really excited. <laughs> I think we all are, yeah. It's quite surreal. Um, I've got to say it's a humbling experience. Where to start? John, thanks so much for coming on. How are you doing generally? I'm doing good. Uh, I think over the last couple of days, I think I've got a little bit excited with the, with the news, with a, obviously with a possible takeover. So of course. I'm like everybody else, my fingers are crossed and I'm saying my prayers and uh, hopefully something will happen that's positive. Brilliant, great stuff. Uh, great to have you on, T-Mark. Uh, of course, you brought the big news yesterday, uh, which we'll touch on a little later. Um, how are things with you? Absolutely fantastic. I'm just, I'm just glad that uh, I got to excite John McGinley. Happy days. <laughs> I know. It, Job can, done. Can't quite believe it. Uh, Chris, can you? I mean, it's a huge milestone for the site, isn't it? And something you, you're very yeah. proud of. Um, you, it is. I, I was, just, I was just messing about on the on the iTunes before, and I noticed that we're we're probably only about six weeks away from the fourth anniversary of the podcast even coming to life. Uh, back on the 9th of March 2015, so yeah, 100 episodes, who would have thought it, eh? Absolutely fantastic, I'm uh, I'm very <laughs> grateful for everyone that's ever come on, ever contributed, ever left a review, ever told us that we were wasting our time, ever said that we've all got weird voices, and, and everything that's ever come of it, it's been, uh, it's been. I'm really proud of it, and I'm, I'm hopeful that tonight's going to be the best one yet. I'm sure it will be, I'm sure it will, and you know, you've got to see be John as well, you couldn't want anything more, could you? Definitely no. I, I'll just gush right from the very start. I, I was born in '83, so when I first started going to Wanderers, about '91, '92, something like that. John, you were front and centre in that entire entire period, and you, you've given us so many happy memories that uh, that it's pretty much all I've got to live on at the moment. He's cherishing those happy memories. So, from the absolute bottom of my heart, I'll I'll just start off the entire podcast by thanking you for everything you've ever done to give me. Saturdays, Wednesdays, whatever it may well be, whether you've been up front, whether you've been in net, it's, it's not mattered. It's been an absolute pleasure from my perspective. Well, it's been the same from my perspective as well, well because it goes both ways, you know, and I think it's, uh, you've got to remember, you know, and, and probably the sad thing about the times we've had recently is, is it forces us to reminisce in years gone by, you know, because we, we do, we, we jump back to the good times and everyone else, but I'm quite confident there's good times around the corner, I really do, and, and I think there's, there's a lot of good things to come out of our football club again. You know, I think it's needing to be rebuilt. I think it's needing to be restructured. But I'll tell you what, when that happens, you know, and we get the town behind the club again, then we're, we're going in the right direction. Definitely. Fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Uh, Tom, have we stunned you in silence or aren't we going to be able to stop you from talking? I, I, I don't quite know at the minute, mate. It's going to go one or two ways. Uh, I'm just, I'm just sat here, I'm just sat here marveling at technology. I mean, 20 years ago, I don't know if you remember John um, Alan Whittle, who worked for the club. Yeah, smashing man, really. Um, Best of so all, really. I mean, yeah, he he, uh, he got me my first ticket to to Wembley in the uh, the game against Reading when I was just five years old. Um, 
but I remember '98 when when you left for Bradford, I wrote you a, a tear-stained letter and gave it to Alan Whittle to deliver to you. And 20 years later, 20 years later we're on the couch. It's very very strange. Well, I'm done. Uh, Tom, if, if I read that letter, it would have been tear-stained on my side as well. So. <laughs> I, I'm not going to lie. I've literally just texted about four people in capital letters talking to John McGinley. So just <laughs> leave that as my my starting point. It's incredible. I mean, as you'd expect, John, we've got millions of questions we'd love to ask, and you know, I think you know, Chris and Tom have compiled you know the best the best of them, um, and you know, I would ass- would assume Chris will take the lead on it because he's you know, as I said before, suited to reminiscing about the good old days, probably more so than I am at the re- at the ripe age of nineteen, <laughs> but uh, obviously more uh, most appreciative appreciative Mark, of it nonetheless. Mark's um, Mark Mark's got underpants older than that. <laughs> I think what Will means is that I, I think that what Will means is that I'm the oldest one out of the three of us. So that's why I'm asking the questions. Right. Yeah, I'm uh, still have underpants older than that. <laughs> God. John McGinley giving me fashion tips, unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. yeah, good one. Mark. Thank God this isn't. Thank God this isn't a video podcast. That's all I'll say. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I'll just uh, interject with current affairs as and when we come to them. Um, so yeah, Chris, go on, kick off. Perfect. Yeah. So, uh, like, just to just to retreat over that again, John. It's an absolute pleasure. Pleasure. And I've spent a couple of hours this afternoon just thinking of a few things that have, have come to mind for myself over over the course of the last sort of two decades of, of of your career and of your your influence over the club and over my enjoyment of watching Wanderers too. Because I, my very first game came back in the days ever so slightly before you arrived um, with a family connection. Cause we got a, a couple of free tickets off Mister Falgate and. And that introduced me to Wanderers in a, in a wonderful way. But it was only around 90, 91, 92, I think, when I first really became aware of yourself and the influence that you, you were starting to feel. So I wondered if you might just take a little bit of time at the start just to perhaps tell the listeners about how you actually came about to sign for Wanderers, where you were at the time, um, who made the call to you, etc. And, and feel free to, to expand or whatever length you feel appropriate. Mm. Well, I, I, uh, I was actually at Millwall. And with obviously Bruce Rea, Bruce Rea, who was my manager at Millwall, and you know I had a good working relationship with Bruce. He was he was a you know obviously a very strict manager, and it's basically what I needed at the time. And you know he sort of whipped me into shape and, and got me in the right uh, direction. And when when Bruce left Millwall and came to Bolton, you know he came back and signed me, and and it took really from the moment he, he got the job at Bolton, I knew I was coming to Bolton. It was just a matter of time. Well, it was about raising the money to buy me, and I think that they ended up paying £120,000. So I'd been waiting all summer uh, to come up, obviously, to sign, and it wasn't until September the 30th that I, that I made, that, uh, made that trip when I signed the forms, because that's how long it took them to, to raise the money. But uh, myself and Keith Brannigan, you know, that we were the first two signings by Bruce, and, you know, Keith was on a free, so signed in the summer, and as I said, it took me... You know, an extra couple of months to get here, and uh, but as soon as I got the phone call from the boss, I was in the car. There was honestly my bags were packed, and in the car within thirty seconds, and I was on my way up to Bolton. And the best journey I've ever had in my life, if I'm honest. Oh, fantastic! I bet. Yeah, he never could have predicted quite how uh, how things would have would have unfolded. But speaking on behalf of all the supporters, it certainly has been one hundred twenty-five thousand pound, very very well spent. Um, okay, brilliant. So just to concentrate on the early days, then just to start mm-hmm. off. Um, obviously, we all know about the white hot campaigns, the the, yeah. the famous picture you guys in the paper. From a player's point of view, obviously, from a supporter's point of view, it was one of those days, one of those 
few weeks of time that can probably never be replicated. But how was it from the players' point of view, from your own and from from your teammates as well? Oh, it was just it was just one. Really, it was a it was a bit of a whirlwind when you look at it, you know, because you know the boss had come in, and obviously money wasn't available. He wanted to to rebuild the squad and and to get players in that he knew and and you know to suit the style of play he wanted to you know to achieve. And and it took him a bit of while, but. You know, when I first came in, we were sitting 18th in the league, and I remember my, my first, uh, the first game I was involved in was at home to to Hull City, and we won 2-0. And I think there was about 6,000 on that day. You know, so it shows you how it grew, because we went on an absolute fantastic run, we really did, and the boys, honest to God, what a group of men in that dressing room. You know, and, and it was it was fashioned by Bruce, but, you know, the captain, Phil Brown, you know, when you get all the characters that were in, in the dressing room at that time and young players coming through, Alan Stubbs, Jason McAteer, Scott Green, you know, and, and when you look at it, a mix of experience, a mix of youth, uh, and it was just fantastic. And the town, you know, from, from the time really we came in and we got on that run, the town really got behind the football club. It just shows you what can, can be achieved. And, you know, it was just it was just great to be involved in it. And the whole place had a buzz about it. The whole town, people were walking about with their chests out, springing their step. And it was just, it, it, it was a fantastic time. And, you know, and it was lucky. It carried on for a good number of years. It did. And from a supporters' point of view, it was absolutely sensational. Some of my favourite memories ever of watching Bolton come from, even from that very early period, just when... One of those things, isn't it, when you start watching football and, and you're not quite sure what's what and you go to a few games and you're, you're taken to the games rather than really choosing to go to the games. But then things happen within those matches that just just get your attention and just hook you in for life. And so I, I'm I'm so pleased that the players enjoyed it as much as, as, much as I did at the time. Listen, everybody, I mean, we, you know, obviously we're all spread all over the place now. You know, players have gone on working for other football clubs. Some have retired, you know, not in the game anymore, but... Every opportunity we get, you know, when we, we play a lot of charity games in the summer with a Legends team that we've got and we, we raise a lot of money for local uh, good causes. But it's a great opportunity for us to get back together and we really look forward to it, you know, and people say, well, you know, it's great you do these things. But honestly, it's a pleasure because it gets us all back together. And yeah. We don't see enough of each other. We really don't because, you know, we've lost a, we've lost touch with people and, you know, we come across them maybe once a year, twice a year. And it's fantastic, you know. I think the older we get as well, you know, even more so we appreciate them times because it's fantastic memories for us all. No, oh, it's brilliant. And I think certainly the work that you're doing, even to this day with the community trust, is appreciated by everyone. I know it's uh, it's not always something that gets the most PR, the most visibility, but it definitely is appreciated. But to concentrate just a little bit to, for now on those years, mm-hmm. uh, if you were to put one person ahead of anybody else, do you have a particular favourite teammate from those years? Oh. I mean... I'm presuming that someone like Andy Walker might well be it, but feel free to to, uh, to put me right if I'm wrong. Of course he is. Andy's right up there. But yeah, that's probably the hardest question of the night. Yeah. Because honestly, me and Andy had a fantastic relationship as, as strikers. And we, we, you know, don't ask me why, but it clicked from the first time we, we set foot on the training ground. It really did. And, you know, Andy knew where I was going to run. I knew where Andy was going to run. You know, if Andy didn't score, I scored. If I didn't score, Andy scored. Vice versa. Or if not, we both scored. And, you know, it was one of them partnerships, really, that just got, it just clicked. And, you know, it was right from the first whistle, it clicked, and, and it was great. I think we complemented each other well. Uh, 
you know, and Andy was a class act. He really was. I mean, he was, you know, playing with his back to go. He was, he would turn so sharp, get his strikes away. He was class. His first touch was excellent. And, you know, it was just one of them times again, you know, all the way through until that Easter Monday when he got injured by a horrendous tackle off Des Little. Uh, it was it was Bank Holiday Monday, Easter Monday at home to Swansea. And, and Andy uh, was out for the rest of the season. And everybody thought it was doom and gloom, you know, because they'd lost yeah. their... Our star striker, but you know, Andy was there at every game and crutches and, and kept us going and he was in the dressing room still cracking the jokes out and it was just great, you know, and he was still part of it right up until we got promotion on the last day of the season. But you know, to to come into and play with somebody like Andy straight away, I mean for me it was class. And you know, to this day, I mean every opportunity we get we meet up. Andy comes down to England quite a bit to to do games, obviously. We either meet at games or he comes down at the early, we've got a game of golf or whatever. So, fantastic. I love the fact that you, you, you're mates off the pitch as well. It just it just solidifies all the thoughts I had about you guys back in the day. That's absolutely brilliant. Now, I'm just going to skip forward a slight little bit. One of the further questions that I fancied asking you later on in the conversation has maybe come to, to be relevant a bit earlier, but I always thought that you're... I've only been younger, younger when I saw you play with, with Walker. I, my sort of peak years, I guess, of getting into the game and watching it and enjoying it was you and Nathan Blake um, just before mm. we left Ferndon. Um, obviously, the two two different kind of strikers with Blake being more power, a, a yeah. game perhaps more based on his power, but did you enjoy playing with either of them slightly more than the other perhaps? Or is that, are they just no, different? Listen, I think it was, another, it, was another, fine. it was another fantastic relationship. I think, again, you know, Nathan come in and power and pace, you know, so I would drop short, maybe link with the midfield players and bring them into play. And then we had a second ball in behind for Nathan. Uh, and if Nathan got beyond you, you weren't going to catch him. You know, you had the power and strength that holds you off. He was a great finisher. And again, I thought we complemented each other really well, culminating, you know, probably, personally, probably our best season, you know, as a, as a partnership. I think the last season we played at Burnham Park, 54 Yeah, definitely. So, you know, I've, I've had 30, Nathan's at 24. And what a return that is for a, for a, a, a partnership. But again, if we didn't have the players right if we would have scored half them goals. You know, we, we were blessed and lucky that we had players in, in the wide areas, we had midfield players breaking forward, and we had our centre backs and defenders chipping in with goals as well. So that's right. Fair, fair Clough and Taggart with sort of seven or eight uh, goals apiece that's it. You know, and, and we were a handful set pieces uh, in general play, open play, you know, whatever it was. And that, you know, these teams that have been involved in and, and the spirit of the club shone through because. You could either play football against us, and that would be fine, because we, we would play, or else you could come and battle us and fight us and we'd fight you. And it, you, know what I mean? you, you take your pick, and it was one of them. If it was both, it was both. But we could we could mix it either way. And that was, again, down to the dressing room we had, and everybody fighting for each other. Uh, it was clear to see from the supporters, but on the subject of fighting, if uh, uh, Jerry Taggart <laughs> and Jamie Pollock had a scrap, who'd win? <laughs> oh, wow. i tell you what, I'd pay money to watch that one. <laughs> I mean, I think you would need a go. You would need a machine. You'd need a strong referee for that one, wouldn't you? Honestly, uh, I would have to say Jerry would edge it. I think I think Jerry would destroy everybody in his path. But, but it would be it would be some fight. I can imagine. Back on the topic, um, you were talking about Bruce before and the influence that he had. I was going to ask what what he was like on the training grounds. So obviously, his supporters we see him. We saw him in the press. We saw him on the side of the pitch directing things during the games but how was he on the training ground I, I can imagine him being a, a pretty hard fella to please but somebody that you actually wanted to wanted to please with your performances 
Well, I think it, I think it showed where, you know, the boss, he had very, very high standards and, and high demands. And, you know, you met them. And if you didn't meet them, you weren't in the team. You knew that. And, you know, it was a bit old school to a certain degree. But at that time, it was quite, it was a, a lot of us needed that discipline. And, you know, the boss, you couldn't get away with anything with him. He, he, honestly, he was, uh, he knew everything. He knew you'd done something before you'd done it, you know. And so he was he was a hard man to please at times. But I tell you what, every player in that dressing would have run through a brick wall to please him. And, and again, it showed. And, then, and you know, Bruce was so organised. Everything was, was organised down to a T. You know, everybody... We had to travel, dress smart. We had to, you know, come in, even coming into the club, we had to be smartly dressed. You know, we couldn't wear jeans and things like that, and we wouldn't get away with it. No. And, you know, a few boys struggled with that. Uh, like some Mark now, Mark would struggle with his uh, demands, but, uh, you know, if Mark was reporting now, he would struggle. But uh, <laughs> You tell me Bruce Ray up with a band now? <laughs> he's doing, yeah, I was going to say, he's, he's not exactly thriving at this second in time, is he? Probably. <laughs> yeah, but no, but all, all joking aside, I mean, he was he was the biggest influence in my career, there's no doubt about that. John, oh, I'm just going to shut Chris up for a minute. Oh, please do. Um, with regards to uh, Bruce and, and the spirit, which which everybody, including yourself, seem, seem to mention, how much of it was the spirit that he brought and how much of it was just luck? Did he... Did he I mean, he obviously had the foresight to bring those first two signings, Brannigan, the brick wall at the back, and then and then yourself up front. But how much of it did he? Do you think he, there was just an element of luck in the? No, in the, I, I, I don't think any of it was luck. So if I'm honest with you, because when you look at it, it's down to your recruitment, and it's down to about you know knowing knowing players, finding out what they're bringing to the table, uh, finding out what kind of characters they are, are they going to fit into your dressing room? Because it only takes one or two that aren't on the same wavelength as the rest of your players or maybe your coaching staff. And that dressing room is not a good dressing room. And you've got to be very careful in the players you bring in. You've got to do your homework. And that is one thing Bruce did alongside Ian McNeil. Ian McNeil was an unbelievable scout uh, that really did his homework, knew everybody in the game, and there was no luck involved. Believe me, these two guys got together and, and... pick and chose the players that they wanted to come to the football club to enhance it and to make that dressing room even better. Were you, were you surprised that things didn't work out at Arsenal for him? Oh, I was. I was, I was shocked, to be honest with you, because, you know, if ever there was going to, you know, be a, be a manager that would go in there, you know, I think it's very similar to David Moyes going in after Alex Ferguson. Mm. And, you know, I think I think there's maybe the next person that goes in should get a better a better go. Yeah, job, if that makes sense. You're doomed to where, doomed to fail a bit sometimes, aren't you? Where you know, Bruce was replacing George Graham, who was an absolute legend at Arsenal, uh, famed for his back four, famed for not conceding goals, and famed for winning one 0 Well, that wasn't Bruce's way of playing, and you know, Bruce played a more expansive game, uh, and in many ways he tried to mirror what he did at Bolton at Arsenal, and also. You know, I think with the players he had at Bolton, no, no disrespect to any of us, but you know, going to Arsenal, they were all household names. And I think he probably tried to treat them probably a little bit the same as he did to us, which was fine with us, but these guys weren't too happy about it. And I think at the end of the day, you know, people like Ian Wright, Paul Merson, Tony Adams, that's who got him the sack. It was player power. There's, you mentioned Ian Wright. There's that, there's that story of uh, Bruce speaking to him on the training ground and saying, 
John McGinley would do this, John McGinley would do this. And then uh, he, he replied uh, quite negatively. How did you, I mean, when, when did you hear about it and how did you feel when you heard that? It was, because I'll be honest, I was ready for getting the train down to North London and seeing through myself. <laughs> no, I think I'll be honest with you. You take it as a positive. I think it was a, I think it was nice for Bruce to say it, but I could see from the other point of view that you know Ian Wright's turning around and saying, "Who the who the hell's John McGinley?" Do you know what I mean? I mean, with the amount of goals that guy scored and with his performances for Arsenal and England, I mean, the, listen, the guy was an absolute fantastic player, you know, and. and I think Bruce was hung out to dry. Not only by the, the football club, the players, the player power, obviously, it was easy to get rid of Bruce. Uh, but I think Arsenal fans are very quick to forget the players he signed. He signed Dennis Bergkamp, uh, David Platt. You know, he, he amassed a fantastic squad there. The, the Arsene Wenger was able to come in straight after him and hit the ground running and go on to be very successful. And I, and I guess that, Bruce did that for Colin Todd as well, didn't he? When... When Toddy took over, he sort of kept on where where Bruce left off. Well, I think again it was it was a case of you know the chairman was very close to Bruce, and you know Gordon Hargreaves was the chairman at the time, and and you know he asked Bruce's advice, and initially Colin, uh, sorry Roy McFarlane came in to work alongside Colin. Uh, I was just going to ask you the story about that, John. Nineteen ninety-five, it was, and. Uh, uh, you know, how did you first hear about this co-manager job? What did the players think, and, and what do you think well, did for McFarland? Was it the fact it was this uncertainty about this this co-manager thing? Because it was, it's, it's been very rarely used in English football. I don't think it's ever really succeeded at all. It was, it was really tough, if I'm honest with you, Roy. I'm not kidding you. Roy McFarland's a fantastic man. He was great in the dressing room. He was great with the boys. Again, what a legend in the, in the game. You know, Derby County, England, centre half. Great knowledge of the game, but uh, a fantastic person. And you know, Roy came in, and it became a little bit of a battle between him and Colin because at the time, I was a club captain at the time, and we'd go in in the morning, we'd go into training, and Roy would be putting a set of cones out on one pitch, and Colin would be putting a set of cones out on another pitch, and the players would be coming to me and saying, "What pitch do we go to? And who do we go to?" And you know, you didn't want to be seen as if you were talking to Roy because Colin thought maybe. There was something being said about him and vice versa. And it was very difficult for the players at the time because nobody really knew who had the final, who, who's got the final say, who's got, you know, who actually determines tactics, player selection, everything else. Because really, it should be one person's got the final say. Mm. And I think it was a difficult situation for the players. It really was. And, and you know, we, we, we weren't on a great run. I think we'd give, initially in that Premier League season, we'd give uh, far, far too much respect to... To the teams that you know that we were playing against, and we were set up in a four-five-one uh, situation. I mean, I spent all that season playing wide on the right, and you know because we, again because we gave just so much respect to other teams, and we got off to a bad start that season. And and I think without making any excuses, the co co manager thing didn't work at all. And yeah, by the, time, by the time we addressed that, it was early in January, and I think by that time we you know the season was done. If I'm honest. Yeah, apart from the, the Wanderers experiment, I can only really think of Liverpool with uh, Roy Evans and Julia that, that tried it again since. And, I don't, and again, that was uh, pretty short-lived. But on the topic of Colin Todd, then, just moving through the years slightly, uh, how did he differ yeah. from Bruce? Because on the, on the surface of things, again, from a fan's point of view, he seems a lot quieter, perhaps a bit more mild-mannered. But then mm -hmm. the difference was that his, his teams were exciting to watch at the same time. Well, 
again, I think once once Colin got the job in his own right, and then you know he had full say on tactics, full say on shape of the team, uh, player selection, etc. Then I think you saw pretty much a mirror image of the way Bruce played. Yeah, and you know it was free flowing attacking football. Yeah, we conceded goals. That was always going to be the case, simply because of the way we attacked. We were leaving ourselves wide open at the back at time, but. You know, I think everybody everybody knew and everybody had the confidence in the team that, listen, if we conceded two, we'd score three and somehow we'd get it done. And more often than not, we did get it done. And, you know, Colin, as you say, there was a bit quieter, uh, probably a bit a bit, uh, a bit easier going in the dressing room, I would say, and on the training ground. But no less, uh, the demands were no less from Colin and the level of proof. And yeah. You know, you look at it, and Colin had had great success as well, and, and you know, kept kept the runs going, and you know, culminating probably his best season was the last one at Burnham Park. Uh, yeah, and that was my, that was my next top next topic to talk to you. But I mean, Todd himself, no no slouch as a player either. You talk about McFarland as well, that the the career that that guy had, they know the stuff. But in the in in terms of the last season at the Reebok, obviously we spoke about Blake as well and the way that it played. But for me, that's still what my favourite Bolton team in my lifetime was that last season at the Reebok. The results we had, you'd turn up every week and you'd know what's what. Um, you'd have you know, people like Gudney Bergson, Patalainen, uh, Pollock and Thompson and, and then the Danes. I mean, Francis and Johansson, I wonder if you could perhaps just touch on them for, for a moment or two, just about what they brought to the team because they came out of nowhere back in the time when Bolton were famous for, for raiding that Scandinavia and places like that for, for these lesser-known players who would make a fantastic impact. Well, again, that was Ian McNeil, the, the chief scout. Ian trolled Europe for these players, uh, you know, and came thankfully came across Per and, and Michael, you know, and I remember the day that the boys signed. What, honestly, fantastic boys. They came in, spoke perfect English, so they got, you know, they're off the right foot straight away, but the, 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 the work ethic from these two boys and the, and the technical ability of both of them Fantastic. They fitted in. I remember we were sitting in the dressing room one day, just finished training, and and the two boys walked in the door uh, with the boss, and I think the chairman was with them as well. And we, we had just finished training, and there was plenty of banter going about in the dressing room, and, and the boys walked in, and I turned round, and I saw little Michael, and, and I swore, actually. I said, goodness <laughs> sake, we, we, we've signed a smurf. <laughs> <laughs> right. I said, well, it was, it was a swear word that we went we went in front of the Smurf. But I said we signed the Smurf, and the wee guy burst out laughing. You know what I mean? And, and he was like, "Oh, brilliant!" So from that day onwards, he was known as Smurf. Uh, little Michael was Smurf, and uh, but no, two great players. It really was. But it shows you that listen, there's players out there, and it's the same as today. You know, if you recruit well and, and do it right, there's plenty of players out there, and this is a fantastic club. It's got a big name. Obviously, you know, my name has been tarnished a little bit recently, but we will attract these players again. There's no doubt about that. Well, Scandinavia has been a, a neglected market, really, for Wonders over the last few years, hasn't it? It's It's, it's been strange. Um, well, but to move on... Uh, mm-hmm. go, sorry, please, go on. No, I was just going to chip in there. Absolutely. Look, do you, do you realise... I mean, I know I'm mapping on a little bit, but the amount of contacts and networking that this football club should have and we don't have... We've got Per and Michael over in Denmark... You know, so anything that pops up there, they'd be straight on the phone if they were made. You yeah. know what I mean? If they were made welcome and, and involved at the club, we've got two guys <laughs> there that are going to see all the best players at a young age, and this should be the first port of call. We've got Goodney Bergson, who's who's the chairman of the Atlantic FA. We've got all their kids over as well, the good ones that are coming through. You know, we've not tapped into our resources as a football club. 
And that's just that's just three boys, you know. You can throw in uh, Sterlios, you know, again. Over in Greece, seeing all these players coming through. We've got so many. We've got, we've got Campo in Spain. You know, we've got Stuart Holden in America. So many resources, really, that should be tapped into. And I know we will do. You know, as this club gets rebuilt and restructured, that's the way we've got to go. Yeah, it's a big world, isn't it? And so it seems it daft not to use the resources we've got. Um, it, it, OK, well, just to move back on to, to matters on the field, I wonder if you could perhaps tell tell some of the listeners, maybe of the younger ones or, or those of a, of a vintage, about the time that you went in goal for Wanderers, because obviously we know all about your goal-scoring exploits, but one of the most memorable nights for me was, was Reading at home in 1996 when... Uh, the goal-getter became the goalkeeper. I wonder if I can hand that over to you, John. Well, I mean, again, it was it was just fairy tale stuff, wasn't it? You know what I mean? And it wasn't. It was never scripted, obviously. I mean, for goodness sake, we, we were one down. We got back to one all. I managed to get the second goal. Uh, Keith Brannigan ends up getting sent off. You know, with well, I think it was about fifty-five minutes or so, he got sent off. So it's left me probably half an hour in goals. Uh, but people didn't know that during training, when we finished training, I used to go on goals. And it's funny because the goalkeepers always wanted to be strikers. And, and I grew up, I grew up in goals. Believe it or not, I played in Fort William where I came from in Scotland. I played for a team and uh, the manager was called Charlie Irvin. And I played in goals at this time. But I played for my high school team. And I played a striker and I was scoring goals for fun. And anyway, I went to Charlie and I said, Charlie, I don't want to play in goals anymore. I want to play as a striker. And he went, no, you're playing goals. You wouldn't let me play out. <laughs> and so I had to leave that team to go and play out for somebody else. And But I've always been a bit of a goalkeeper, if that makes sense. And we used to, you know, the players used to have a bit of banter and take shots at me after training was finished. And the goalkeepers used to shoot at me. And I used to love diving about in the mud and everything else. And that, and that was it. So when... When Keith Brannigan got sent off, it was automatic. I just went up and grabbed the gloves. Nobody told me. The manager didn't say nothing. I just went up, grabbed the gloves, put the shirt on. Of course, Keith's gloves looked like they were ten sizes too big. The shirt came down to my <laughs> knees. You know what I mean? I, I was like, I was like Seth Meyer with like a, ten, a shirt ten <laughs> times too big for me on. But uh, no, the boys, you know, when that happened, though, straight away, you, like you said, you've got Jerry, you've got. Uh, you know, Jerry Taggart, you've got Chris Fairclough, you've, you know, you've got the boys at the back throwing their bodies, getting blocks on, do you know what I mean, and, and denying shots at goal. Everybody, I mean, down to 10 men, played out their skin that night. I mean, it was unbelievable, but we were on such a roll. The, the crowd, you know, going down to 10 men, but the crowd jump in, so they, they get us back up to 11 with their support, and that's what got us through. And, yeah. you know, you look upon it, it, again, the boys were just monumental. The, the guys at the back, I mean, I come off, okay, and Branny runs on, lifts me up, and, and you know, we do all the celebrating. But really, the celebrating should have been done for the boys at the back that, that played so well to stop the shots coming in and stop the blocks and, you know, when the headers coming in. And, you know, that was another night, and another night that sort of goes down in, in the books and nice to talk about, you know, when you're old and you, your grandkids are on your knee. Well, there's certainly many of them. I, I just I can just hark back to the, the Tottenham game, the Chelsea game. All those those games when we were in the lower divisions, we're facing these big teams with Rude Hullet and Viali and all the star players. And I had no doubt in my mind turning up to the ground on those nights that, that we'd win. And and from my own point of view, that the Tottenham game, the six-one, uh, remains to this day one of the, my favourite ever footballing memories. That that was just a, an absolute party all night. I think from that. I mean, do, do you have oh. any particular memories of that for as a player? Oh. That was, I mean, that was an. I mean, that was you think about it. That was a hell of a side they had as well. Sheringham, 
you know, Anderton, you look at the back, uh, Colin Saul Hall, Campbell. Got on international yeah. Saul Campbell. Uh, so they had a they had a really good side, you know. But again, cup nights, especially midweek cup nights at, at Bundon Park were special. They were they were just unbelievable, and teams would turn up there, and you knew straight away if they fancied it or not. And that night, I think we just we hit Tottenham like a whirlwind that night. Mm-hmm. Everybody played out their skins. Everybody played at the top of their game as we knew we would have to. And you know the goals came at the right time. And oh, I mean we cut them to ribbons at times. You know I mean. Thompson, Pear, all these boys. I mean, they were just unbelievable. Uh, and I think when you look back, I won a bike. I got one of the match that night, and I, and I won a bike. And I only had it. Somebody, <laughs> somebody nicked out my garden. It was a Coca-Cola bike. Somebody <laughs> nicked out my garden. So, so that was the end of my bike career. <laughs> I can imagine you would have been on it every night as well. And one thing that always struck me from that era, and again, it's just from a personal point of view, only because Will never lets me talk normally, so I'm going to take this opportunity, was one of the things that used to make me laugh, and I, without fail every week, was the fact that the team would come out, the team would go through a strenuous warm-up, you know, you'd see the stretching, you'd see the sprints, you'd see the running, and then and then you'd trot out 10 minutes after that. <laughs> Obviously, once, <laughs> once the hardest bit had been done, and I took that inspiration into my own career, I must say, as, as, a, as a failed under-15 striker, <laughs> get, try and do as little running as possible in the warm-up, because you want to save yourself for the match, surely. Well, there was another wee bit of a story. I don't know if you remember, uh, in that last season at Burnden Park, I was actually struggling for the last three months. I was getting injections in my thigh before every game. Yeah. And uh, if you remember back, remember we played Wolves at home? Uh, yeah, I, I do. The Burnden one. Well, what had happened that day was, I, I couldn't even, by this time I couldn't even warm up. And so I was just staying in completely. Uh, the doctor, just before I'd gone to pitch, the doctor put an injection in my thigh, no way it goes. Well, this time I went in, and the doctor's there, and he goes, uh, he goes, John, go for a little jog. Just go for a little jog, 30 seconds, a minute jog, get the blood going, come back in, I'll put the injection in, it'll work quicker, and he says, you'll be ready to go. I went, all right, doc, no worries. I've come out, walking out the dressing room, as I'm walking out the dressing room, all the players are coming in. I'm thinking, oh, for God's sake, here we go. So anyway, and a lot of people thought I wasn't playing, because I hadn't been out, you know what I mean? I hadn't been out taking the warm-up. So anyway, as they're coming in, Scott Green, the most gullible man in the world, you know, I said, Green, come on back out with me. And he went, what do you mean? I said, I've just got to go for a little jog. Come on with me. And he went, no, no, I'm again, I've got to get ready. I've got to get I said, Greeny, come on, son. Let's go. Come on. So Greeny came with me. Well, as I walked out, there was nobody on the pitch whatsoever. And as I walked out and you ran up the tunnel to get onto Burnham Park. Well, as I ran up the tunnel, the crowd went ballistic. Our crowd went just berserk, and I ran across to the other end, just a little jog, ran across the other end, and of course all the Wolves fans went berserk, they? they were all trying to climb over the fences, and Lofty was down that corner at the time, right in front of them, and he wasn't expecting it, so I've come out, and they all started to try to go over the fence, they were pelting Lofty with pies and all sorts, and all I've done is a little jog across the park, little jog back, I gave the Wolves fans a little wave, well, I ran down, I ran down the tunnel, straight into the dock. The dock's put the injection in my leg. And as he put the injection on my leg, basically, it was turn around, get off the bed and walk straight out back onto the pitch. Well, as we walked back up onto the pitch, that had set the tone for the atmosphere in the place. The place was absolutely electric. And we'd come up. And again, Wolves came that day to stop us playing. They'd come to fight. And the boys stood toe-to-toe with every one of them that day. 
Yeah. And again, it was a choice. Come and fight us or come and play. They came to fight and they got battered and they got battered in the score as well, 3 0, and that was it. But they did. And that reminded just John Sheridan that day would just oh. solidified his place in my thing. He, he could play, but he was a scrapper as well. You know what, John Sheridan, again, you were talking earlier about Jerry Taggart, you know, and, and I'm telling you, John Sheridan could go toe to toe with anybody as well, by the way. And, you know, if you went through that team, there was, there was a good dozen boys in there would go toe to toe with anybody. So that was the difference. If you kicked one of us, you kicked us all. And, and again, John. John ran the game that day from the middle of the park. He really did. Absolutely fantastic. Well, that that was obviously the last season before we we left Burned, and I know we all we all know about the final the final game and the fact that you scored the final goal at the at the ground. But how do you think the club was set for the move to the new stadium? Obviously, we were heading into heading into the Premier League. It was all a bit of a bit of the unknown on on many different fronts. But how did the players feel about moving to a new ground? Well, I think you know. The, I think you just needed to look at some Nats face, you know, in that last game. You know, so yeah. if you looked at all the ex-players, all the legends were walking around the pitch at different times and, and you know, and obviously taking applause from the crowd now. Nat walked all the way around there with tears rolling down his eyes. You know, he, he was heartbroken on leaving Burnham Park because that was his home. And, you know, and, and I get it. I get the fact that we, we had to move. I get the fact that, you know, we were moving to a fantastic stadium. I think it took us a good few years to make it our home. Uh, I think initially it felt like playing away. Uh, but, you know, I'll, I'll never forget Sir Nat's face, you know, go walking around there and, and you know, realising that, you know, that was a shrine to 33 people that, that died in the disaster there as well. And I think not so long after that, it's a Woolworths. You know, and mm. I think it was unforgivable. It was unforgivable to a certain degree. I mean, I, Christ, I, I, I shed a tear myself a few times going past there. I just couldn't believe it. And I think once once you drove past there and you saw, you know, when everything was flattened before the rebuild, you saw how big an area we had to build and maybe, you know, maybe restructure the club to a certain degree. I don't know how they could have done it or if they could have done it, but it would have been nice to to have kept the club as a whole in the town. Because I feel yeah. the day that we left the town as a club, I think the heart left the town. And I think it was, it was there's no coincidence, the decline of the town went along with the club leaving. I'm just going to jump in there, Chris. Yeah, it, Sorry. Just, just to, you know, you're talking about Nat, obviously, John. Um, yeah. Obviously, I never got to see him play, never got to see him manager or anything like that. And I just sort of wondered, you know, what he was like, you know, to be to know, you know, to be around, you know, mm. what, you know, really, you know, how, how much of a legend was he, you know, for the lads and for the, for the supporters back then, in your eyes? Well, you know, there's a there's a new book coming out in in, in a few in about three months I think uh, about some that and it's written by a Bolton supporter and I was absolutely thrilled and honoured to be asked to write the foreword for it mm-hmm. and in fact I was I was humbled to be asked to, to write the foreword for Sarnat's mm-hmm. book and we were so lucky you know because from the first day that I signed for the club in September the thirtieth nineteen ninety two I met the man that day and I was in awe of him. And you know the funny thing is, he never spoke to you about him playing. He never mentioned what he did in his career. He never, he didn't have to. No. But there's a lot of people that all you all you hear about is what they've done. And Sir Nat was the exact opposite. You never heard it. He would come up, he'd put your arm around you, and he would take you for a little walk round round the pitch. You know, at times maybe maybe you were having a bad time. Maybe you know somebody was out of the team. And he would come in and, all right, all right, Cocker. That's the words he would say all the time. All right, Cocker. Come on, come have a little chat. 
and he would take you out and he would have a little walk down and all he would say, keep your head up, keep going, you know, keep doing the right things, it'll come right. You know, and they say, you know, these are good people, they'll back you, the supporters will back you, you know what I mean? This is a fantastic club. And honestly, the man was was an absolute gentleman, a gentleman. And to see his face, you know, on you've talked about, you know, a lot of the big games and, you know, the playoff win at Wembley and, and things like that. And to see that man's face, the, the beaming smile, just so proud of his football club, mm. it was humbling. And even now, when I think about him, the hairs in the back of my neck stand up, mm. you know, because the guy, honestly, and he treated everybody exactly the same. Whether you thought you were the best player in the world or, or you were an apprentice, he treated everybody the same. And he was just, uh, oh, uh, honestly, mm. it's... I think, like Chris said earlier, you know, there's something so satisfying about, you know, you have an image of someone and you thought about how how they are as a person. And, you know, to mm. hear that, is, it, you know, it's so reassuring and it's just like, yeah, you know, that, well, honestly, that, that, that is the man that everybody really loves. That man would never disappoint anybody. I'm telling you. Well, it sounds just fantastic words. I look forward to look forward to reading that book, basically, if, if only on your tribute there. It's absolutely fantastic. Um, Nice one, Will. That's a great, great comment to make. I never even thought about asking about Loftus. So what an obvious thing to say. Absolutely brilliant. Um, from from sort of one one extreme to the other, I wondered. There's one thing that always crossed my mind is that I've always never made any secret of my childish tears the day that Sasa Kurcic left. Um, yeah. Just a just a heart back to to one particular player. What was he like to play with? Because obviously we all know him today as an absolute mad as a box of frogs. But Christ, what a player he was. Do you know he, he was hard to play with? If I'm honest with you, I mean, yeah, the talent, I mean, don't get me wrong. The talent was unbelievable, a, a tremendous talent, in, but an individual talent, very yeah. hard to fit into a team. Uh, you know, you'd be, you'd, he'd be running. He, he, if he beat five players, he'd want to beat eight players. Yeah, um, and and it was a case of he'd have players wide open just for a little slot ball through, and you'd be through on goal or whatever. But you know, he ran with his head down a lot. And it was a beat one man after another, and you know sometimes going back and beating them again. Yeah, it's great for the fans to watch, isn't it? But perhaps not not for his teammates. Well, again, listen, great guy, never nails, but frustrating at times because right. I think I think from his point of view, he could have done so much better. And I, you know, I think when you look at his career after he left, it was pretty much short lived. Whenever he went, yeah, there was no doubt in his ability, no doubt in his talent, but very hard to fit into a team a team process and especially when there's people in better situations than you and, and you don't pass the ball to them. You yeah. Know, if, you're not, if you're not careful, uh, you know, you're, again, your dressing room just strong as part of your football club and if you're not it, careful, you know, that can go amiss quite quickly. I think it's always quite interesting over the years. I mean, there's exceptions, Cahill and Elka, for example, but people like Kerchich, people like Thompson, Blake, people left for, often left Bolton for big money, but perhaps never quite yeah. was as good as they were at Wanderers when they moved elsewhere because of the unique set of circumstances that they found themselves in. No, and that's that's the thing. You know, I think other clubs tried to sort of, you know, maybe copy what, what we did, but they weren't able to do it, you know. And obviously they, they liked these players to come and fit into their systems. And you're right, you know, I think there was very few successes when they left. Uh, now, again, I think that was down to the recruitment. Again, it was down to recruiting the right players for our system, and they all fitted in very, very well. I mean, you think about it. Think back to all the... I mean, there was obviously deals that went right, but there wasn't too many. You know, and there's nobody really that glares at you and stands out, and you think, wow, we wasted loads of money there, or we wasted loads of money there. 
it seemed like, and it probably wasn't the case, but it seemed like everybody just came in and fitted in and did really well. Definitely, even when... Sorry, know, That was the mentality of the club. Yeah, yeah. Even when people like Blake came in for big money and perhaps didn't fire, it didn't fire at first. By you know, by the the time the the final judgment was made on their Wanderers career, they were they were an absolute success. Um, but on on the topic of leave, on the sorry, go on, please. I was going to say about Nathan. You've got to remember though, Nathan came in, you know, probably into a side that was struggling and a side yeah. that you know they were playing in a more defensive way of playing, giving too much respect to the other team. Uh, so, you know, as a lone striker, and I think very similar to probably what, what's happening at the moment with the club, whereas, you know, they don't get a lot of service, don't really get a lot of support, you're sort of hung out to dry, and when you're not yeah. scoring goals, you take the brunt of that criticism. And I don't think it was really fair on Nathan. Uh, in fact, I don't think it was fair on any of the players really then, because we were probably out of our depth. And, you know, at that time, no, coming up, we were probably we weren't strong enough. We didn't have the strength and depth, you know, in a squad that we could change, and you know, we didn't have enough quality mm. in our team really to go out and really give it a go at that time. Yeah, it's one thing my uncle always proposed that we were, we were promoted twelve months too soon, um, when we beat Reading in that playoff final. So perhaps there's a, a little bit of merit in that. Well, possibly I think financially it came too soon. Because I think you've got to remember, on the back of moving to the stadium as well, a lot of the finances were taken up because of the new stadium. Yeah. So the club was very wary of spending money and you know, coming back to haunt them at a future date. So it was a case of, I think, the, the stadium came first. And if we were sure. to, to do well, then great. I was just going to bring Mark a mo- a modern, Sorry, go on. Oh, uh, no, I, I was just going to bring Mark in there, actually, if, if he's still awake. Um, just, you know, over the fact that John was talking about, you know, transfers and bringing people in big money and how people perceive that, you know, obviously deadline day, you know, deals aren't quite the same as they are now and, you know, you don't get Mark's blogs. <laughs> but you didn't get Mark's blogs, rather. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you reported on many of them and just, you know, so what, what was that like for you, you know, reporting on that? Can you sort of give an insight on that as well from a reporter's point of view? Reporting on deadline day. Yeah, well, you know, just you know, back towards John's era and sort of stuff like that. Well, it was it was simpler. I mean, I do remember the days before transfer windows. I mean, they've been for since two thousand three now. It's been a long time um, mm. that this kind of system's been in. But they seem to be more straightforward at Bolton. Certainly, when you go back as far as Big Sam and things, you know, mm. you seem to get business done a lot earlier. Nowadays, you know, it seems to be a mad rush. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it does seem to be forced and, you know, looking, you know, the, the, the blogs that I've been doing the last the last two or three years, they've just been astronomical. It's been it's been crazy, not because you're kind of trying to overhype them. It just feels like, you know, that they've last, la- left all the business for that, yeah. that last day. And it, it just seems to be a mad dash every single year. Yeah. I mean, you just never know what's going to happen, do you? Yeah. No, exactly. I mean, look, I'll, I'll give Ken Anson his credit. He's box office as far as website numbers. I tell you what, he's uh, he's done wonders for our online figures. But uh, <laughs> the, uh, yeah. the, uh, the old hairline's taken a batter in this last few years. <laughs> yeah. and just segueing back to... Back to John, you know, sort of about these transfers. Obviously, you sort of saw it firsthand, and you know, obviously, money was peanuts back then. Um, yeah. But you know, was it still such a big deal? You know, when these players came in, you know, was there a big expectation around it, or you know, do you think that it, it was, you know, it lumped more pressure on the existing players at that club to to, to perform better? No, I think I think probably it, it, 
it's, it's probably hard to say, but I think at that time it was easier for players to come to the football club because the football club was going well. Yeah. You know, I think they were coming into a good restroom. I think they were coming into a good environment and the team was successful on the park. So it, that's always easier. You know, mm. I think when you're coming to a club that's struggling, you know, a club with no finances as we are at the minute, it's very hard to attract players. You know, and with the recent, you know, with the recent headlines about wages and etc., and agents not getting paid, etc., you know, it's a hard sell because if you're an agent, you've got a player. You're thinking, well, I'm not going to get paid. Is the player going to get paid? And it casts out in people's minds, you know. And again, I said, I said this week, you know, we were a football club, a proud football club that you know players would walk over broken glass to come and play for this football club. Mm. And you know now we're finding it very, very hard to attract players. Mm. You know, so that's got to change, and we've got to get it back to walking over the broken glass again. Yeah, that's the that's the reality of it. Well, just just to sort of move the questioning over just to the sort of modern era before we start talking more about the uh, 2019 version of Bolton Wanderers. I don't, I've never really remember a great deal, John, about your 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 leaving Bolton when when you ended up moving to Bradford. I appreciate that. When the club moved to the stadium, obviously they made some expensive signings. It maybe pushed things in a slightly different way in terms of the age of the squad as well. I wonder if you could perhaps just give us your insight into your, maybe your last last days at Wanderers, if you don't mind. Well, uh, it was kind of hard to take, if I'm honest with you, because we we'd obviously went away after a successful season, the last season at London Park. Uh, I just scored 30 goals the season previous. And, you know, Nathan had scored 24, so there's a 54-goal partnership. I'm not saying we would score anywhere near that in the Premiership, but it was a good partnership. And the second day I got back to pre-season training, Colin Todd had pulled me aside and said that I was going to be a squad player. Uh, he mm. said to me, and this is before I'd even kicked a ball, he said he was, I was going to be a squad player. And, you know, culminating in Peter Beasley came in, he was older than me, uh, Dean Holdsworth had got signed for three and a half million pounds, so he wasn't going to sign, you know, Dean and not play him. Uh, so you looked at that and you thought, well, fair enough. And, and I'd come back. I'd got injured early when I'd came back as well because I'd done my Achilles. And the start of the season was hard. Uh, I started the season on the bench, and you know, in the back of my mind, and all it was in the back of my mind was the World Cup in 1998, that season, the end of that season was a World Cup. Now, I was playing for Scotland at that time and, and doing okay for them. So my plans were obviously I need to be playing to be part of the World Cup squad. And, you know, with Colin taking me aside the second day of training and breaking that news to me, I was I was I was just absolutely broken hearted. Because on both fronts I wanted to do well for the for Bolton and I wanted I want to get in the Scotland team for the World Cup because I knew I was coming towards the end of my career. It was the last opportunity I'd ever have to play in a big tournament with Scotland. Uh, I had played the previous four years for Scotland, so, you know what I mean, I'm not saying I was guaranteed a place, I'm not saying anywhere near that, but I was in the running for a place, but I needed to be playing. So, you know, the start of the season, the Achilles had been getting worse and worse, and it ended up that I was going in, probably I was going on the training ground half an hour before yeah. anybody else to try and loosen my Achilles up before we started training. And it just seemed to get worse and worse every week. And it got to the stage where I had internal bleeding because I was taking so many anti-inflammatories before I trained, after I trained, uh, that day, that night, same in the next day. And that, because I'd taken them for such a long period, they had burnt away all the insides of my stomach. And I had, I had bleeding, I had all sorts of things going on. 
and that was just trying to still to play. Yeah. Uh, culminating in the fact then Sunderland had come in for me. Uh, Bradford had come in for me. There was talk of Man City coming in for me. So, you know, there was clubs there. I mean, I've just mentioned three clubs. <coughs> Probably the, the, the least of the clubs that you would you would go to would be Bradford. And that's where I ended up. You know, I went to... I got asked to go and meet Chris Kamara, who was the manager at the time. And what a smashing fella. I mean, I met him so enthusiastic, so infectious. Come on, you'll play, you'll play for me. I'll build the team around you. I did a do and all that. And I thought, well, fair enough. I went back to Bolton and I said, well, look, you've allowed me to talk to them. I was impressed with them, but I want to stay here. And again, Colin reiterated the point that I wasn't going to play. So really, mm. he made my mind up for me. And the next thing I know, it's a Friday lunchtime. I've looked at myself. I'm in a stupid brown and like red tracksuit. And I'm on the bus going to Swindon to make my debut for uh, for Bradford. And I must, I'm telling you, I, you know, you see people that are happy when they sign for somewhere. I was the opposite. I'm sitting on that bus going to, going to Swindon thinking, what the hell have I done? I just couldn't believe it. I just, this never, ever. And culminating in that, I played, played a few games. Uh, my, my, my Achilles tore towards the end of the season in March. And in fact, it was against Man City. I started the game, and normally when I started the game, I could run it off and it would get a bit looser as the game went on. This was the opposite. I started the game and it got tighter and tighter okay. and tighter. And by half time, I couldn't even walk. I came off the park. I said to Chris, I said, Chris, I can't play. I'm done. And that was it. I went in the following Tuesday and I had an operation on my Achilles, and that was it. Done. No World Cup, nothing. The moves ended up being a waste of time, and I felt even worse after that. Mm-hmm. I completely appreciate your honesty there. It's, it's certainly given us the insight into into what happens behind the scenes. I know from a supporter's point of view, it's one of them, isn't it, where you, you've got to appreciate the club's desire to to change direction, I guess, from time to time. But it's it, it's sad to see uh, to see legends leave the club, no matter what the circumstances are. Um, I had a, I had a choice. I mean, it was at the time. Yeah. Obviously, I could have sat I could have sat on the bench. I could have just sat about the place and. The, the chairman had told me I had a job, I had a coaching job. He said to me, you've got a job for life here and you've got a coaching job, you're, you're going to your badges, you're, you're in, do, 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 and all that. So I gave that up as well by going, and it was simply because of the desire to try and play in the World Cup. And it was nothing else, because I could have sat in it, I could have sat, you know, in the club, I got involved in the coaching side, and that, and that would have been it. But I wanted badly to play in that World Cup, and, you know, my dream was shattered anyway, so that was it. Mm-hmm. You know, like you said, John, you know, obviously meeting Chris Kamara beforehand, you know, f- for these talks, um, you know, obviously we, we don't really get to find out what, what sort of happens um, mm. with, with transfers beforehand, you know, how it all comes about, you know, whether you go and meet manager them, whether you go and meet the chairman, whatever. Was it just a case of you literally just went to see Chris once and then that was it? Or was there more, like, was the discussions quite lengthy? No, I met him, uh, I met him in the holiday inn. Uh, just off the motorway at Huddersfield and mm. uh, I met him there and it was only for about an hour I had a cup of coffee sat there chatted over a few things uh, but he was infectious you know what I mean he was one of these managers that you think yeah yeah, he's, he'd be a good guy to play for mm-hmm. uh, and in fact you know what it was it was a good club I mean I'm being disrespectful by saying you know I didn't like the place and everyone else it was a good club they had good supporters it was just the wrong time for me to be there because yeah, yeah. I wasn't in it and, you know, added to the, the Achilles injury, 
and my heart not being in it. It was the wrong thing for them. And to be honest with you, after I had my operation, uh, I was on a three-year contract. And after I had my operation, I felt terrible. I tried to come back in the summer too early. It tore again in exactly the same place, my Achilles. And I went in to see the surgeon again, and he said he wouldn't operate on me again. He said it would have to heal naturally this time. He wasn't going to operate in the same place twice in such a, a short space of time. So I was going to be out basically for about nine months and basically that finished me off and I went in, the chairman called me in at Bradford I went and sat down with him I had three, I, well I had over two years to run on my contract and, he, and I sat down and I, and I felt terrible, I felt guilty because they had signed me and I was injured yeah. and they had signed me really and, and I just felt guilty and he turned around and he went I could have sat on my whole contract and, and that was it, he turned around and he offered me uh, three months money and I took it and I left wow. and that was it and I didn't. I could have sat on it for two years. And yeah. I didn't. I yeah. did three months' money, and that was me finished. Because I felt John, guilt. John, when it came to going to Bradford and then maybe later working at Wigan, yeah. did you get plenty of stick for having a Bolton Wanderers tattoo? Yeah, I've always, I've always had stick on that because obviously when you go to work for another football club, people know you've got a tattoo and everything. But I don't. I don't care about that. They know what club I love. Although I work for somebody else doesn't mean to say I like the club, it doesn't mean to say I'm doing a job. Yeah. You know what I mean? This is my club. This is the club I love. I always will do. And you know, the reason I got a tattoo, and my, my, all my kids are Bolton supporters. My, my boys have got uh, Bolton tattoos as well. So, <laughs> you know, it's a kind of, it kind of runs in the family now. But uh, mm. but no, just, I, I don't care what other people say. This is my football club and that's it. I mean, every, sorry, go, go on. I, 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 no, 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 please. I was just going to say quickly, you know, like you said, John, you know, you thought you were finished after that. And although people don't necessarily look back on it fondly, of course you weren't because you then featured in the Legends match. And, you know, incredibly, that was the only time I probably got to see you play, um, even though, you know, you were rotating and that was quite surreal, you know, you know, having Tony Kelly on there and everything. Um, yeah. You know, were you, did you have quite a big role in that? And, you know, how, how did all that come about? You know, because obviously no. you had players like Kirishich, like we talked on before, you know, all those that playing, you know. Yeah. yeah. Well, it was basically myself and Tony got got round and got all the players in. And, you know, that was hard work because, again, they're all over the world, you know. Mm. And, and, but I'll tell you what, what a fantastic you get You know, get these boys on the phone, you know, tell them what we're trying to do. And it was like, okay, let me just let me know when it is and we're there, you know. And it was it was absolutely brilliant. It really was. And it was a shame for some of the boys that couldn't make it down to commitments. You know, I know Goodney, Goodney had a big law case in court mm. at the time and he couldn't get away from it. Uh, you know, Goodney would have been here. He was gutted. But uh, I've got to say, though, I mean, you know, the likes of JJ to turn up. I mean, it was, for me, I, it, listen, it was great for you guys to, to see yeah. JJ come back. But you should have seen us. We were like kids just wanting to play with him. You know what I mean? It was like just to get him in the dressing room and, and to play on the same side as him. Mm. I mean, Tony Kelly cried his eyes out because I picked him. Right, and he wasn't in his team. So what we had to do in the end was I had to relent, and I said, "Okay, Tony, I'll have him one half, and you, your team can have him the second half." And that, that was the only way we got around it. But you can see, it wasn't. It, that was only a bit of banter. The yeah, reality was, yeah. was, we wanted both teams to play with JJ. You know, yeah. everybody. We wanted everybody to have that experience, and so we were just as as humble as you. You guys were great to see him coming back. We were just the same mm-hmm. wanting to play with him. Maybe JJ just wanted to play with you. I don't think so. <laughs> but, 
But no, I'll tell you, I'll tell you one thing I did get out of him. I mean, that was, that was quite sweet. He signed, uh, uh, I mean, he wore number 10, I wore number 10. So we, I both, we both signed two boots. And so I got a boot with his signature and my own on it. So, I mean, it's, that was that was nice. Oh, brilliant. Mm-hmm. Absolutely brilliant. So um, you can okay, just, Chris. Just... <laughs> Go on, Chris. Yeah, yeah cheers. Just, just a couple of things and just to finish off from, from my point of view. I just wanted yep. to touch on the, the sort of more recent era. I know you were very close, obviously, to Owen Coyle and you, you linked with yep. him quite a fair bit during his time at the club. Yep. Obviously, he started things started really, really well with Coyle when he took over and, and everything looked rosy, but then it all kind of it all kind of went south. I mean, I wonder what your perspective was on that. Obviously, I'm not uh, not expected to bury your mate, but if you've got any insight into that period, because oh. that always seemed to me like a period of, of sort of untapped potential, I guess. Things could have gone one or two ways, and unfortunately for us, they, they went the wrong one. Yeah, I mean, I think when you look at it, Owen, Owen did fantastic when he first came into the club. When he left Burnley and first came into Bolton, he kept us up. He was fantastic. Uh, at the end, and again, I'm, listen, very, very good pal of mine, as you know. Uh, I've worked, I've worked at various clubs with Owen, and you know, to this day, he's one of my best pals. But I'm not going to stick up or, or, or you know, be biased towards it. But you don't see what goes on behind the scenes when we got relegated. And I know people are turned around and say some of his selections, some of his, that always happens, regardless of who the manager is. You should have done this, should have played this guy, should have done this, whatever. You know, but I think. When you look back at it, the start of the downfall was losing Stuart Holden, no doubt, and Fabrice Moamba. The incident happened to him. No, because that was our midfield, that was our that was our engine room. We lost. And when you look at it, that was the start of the down spiral for me. I don't think we've ever recovered from that. And you look at us. He also had to cut when we got relegated that first season, and he and they came down. He he cut eighteen million pound off the wage bill in one fell swoop. So in a similar vein as to where we've gone now, where each season, you know, we we replace players that possibly weren't good enough in the first place with yeah. even more inferior players. It's a downward spiral, and I think when Owen, that was the start of it. You know, because we were trading down rather than. You know, maybe getting younger, hungry players in that are going to improve. We've ended up as a club signing players in the last year or two of their careers. And well, it's never more it. true than in football, is it? You get what you pay for in football. Oh, no, listen, absolutely. No question about that. And I think you've got to look upon it as there's no disrespect to any of them because, listen, if somebody offers you a contract, they're deemed by that contract and that's it and it's down to the football club it's their decision to sign these players but you look at it and all we've done for the majority of of the older players that we've signed with no resale value all we've done is contribute another year's contributions to their pension before they retire you know there's been nothing uh, we've got to get back to that model of signing younger players with a lot of growth development in them and then selling them on to allow us to build the club back up We've got to, you know, and, and getting more youthful naivety and legs about the park. You know, we've got a lack of legs at this moment in time that we get overrun quite easily by other teams. And that's why we, we sit in so deep. We don't we don't venture forward very often because we leave ourselves wide open and we don't have that recovering ability to get ourselves back in the right side of the ball when we lose it. So, you know, our, 
you look at it in a recruitment model, needs to get back to that. Younger players, yes, you've got to have a sprinkling of, of experience in amongst them, but overall, we've got to be looking at these players that we can bring in, develop a bit more, and then sell them when the time's right to allow us to bring another one in and do the same again and keep going until, you know, as a football club, we don't bring enough money through sponsorship or through the gate. We've got to subsidise that somehow. And then the only way we're going to do it and to, again, to build the club up is to sign the right players and get them in. Absolutely fantastic. No no, agree, no disagreements with me whatsoever. Well, finally then, from my point of view, uh, I was just going to ask you, just to, you have just done so, but just to touch on the current situation and, I guess thinking in the future, I mean, I'm, the manager's uh, record has been well documented to this yeah. point. What are we, eight, eight points from the last 60 available, perhaps? And again, I'm not expecting you to uh, to favour anybody in particular, but should should the manager lose his job? I mean, we don't, we don't want him necessarily to be in that horrible position, but needs must when it comes to the football club. Who would you want to see as a fan take over the main job? Listen, first and foremost, Phil, Phil Parkinson should be in the job now. There, there's no way in it. It's a results business and there's no sentiment in football. We've lost, we, you know, we, people lose their jobs for a lot, a lot less. Mm. And, you know, when you look at the run we've been on, and I think added to the fact that, you know, it's a negative way of playing. It's the crowds. I mean, the, the amount of people that stop me every time I go shopping, every time I go into the town, every time I go anywhere, people stop me. And it's like, why are we playing this way? Why are we not giving it a go? And you try to explain to them it's not quite as simple as that or as easy as that, you know. And, and you know, you, but then you start to think as a supporter and you think, well, they're right. You know, because it's okay saying we haven't got the players. Well, why not? Why have we not recruited better players? You know, why have we not got better players? And why have we not got players in that can go from a plan A to a plan B to a plan C? We just seem to sign players that are plan A and there's no change. Um, you know, you, you look upon it now, the only reason that Phil Parkinson is still in a job at this football club is because of the financial situation. Yeah, I mean, obviously, like, we missed out on uh, on getting a strike on deadline day, like you said, you know, and it's, you know, not having that, that extra option, um, you know, why that hasn't happened. And, you know, according to the club, you know, it, it was obviously a fault on Fleetwood's end as Joey Barton is, um, for whatever reason, uh, smugly admitted. Um, but you know, do you think that you know we perhaps should have um, been prepared for that in advance? You know, we, we should have got some business done early, early doors. Um, you know, we, and we should have well, been relying on that. We didn't do our homework on that one. We yeah. didn't. I mean, listen, we've got to know the situation, right? We've got to know the circumstances of everybody. And why was it left at the last minute? I know Chad Evans was up talking to Sunderland. That fell through, and they went for Will Gregg. But it was like, okay, then, so we'll take whatever's left. And that being the case, he's on loan. There was a 24-hour recall, but it had to be outside that 24-hour window to recall him. It was inside the window, so then you needed written permission to take him from Fleetwood. Mm-hmm. Now, at 11 o'clock at night or 11.30, whatever time it was, it was, but it was really late on in the window, there wasn't much left. Why would Fleetwood sign an agreement to let Ted Emmons go at the last minute without them being able to get a replacement in. Yeah, why should they do us as a favour? He's their player. You know, and I think we've got to, rather than blame and point fingers at everybody else, we've got to look at ourselves and say, well, why were we organised enough to get the deal done? Yeah. Why, why didn't we know the rules and regulations that needed to be done 
to get the deal in. And if that being the case, and we knew that Fleetwood weren't going to sign that piece of paper, we should have had a plan B or a plan C, an alternate sitting there waiting, as you normally do. But it looked like we put all eggs in the one basket, and that was it. I think, you know, like you said before, you know, it's hard to get players to come and play, want to come and play for us now. And I think one of the lads had said said the other day something like, you know, if. if you look at the phone and, and you know we're ringing, you know what? Why would you want to pick up at this rate? You know, it, it, it's a case of well, that, isn't it? Really, but well, it is. And, and two two ways of looking at that. Again, it's the way we're set up to play, i.e., the manager's tactics. Because if you were a midfield player, why would you want to come to us? Because all you all they do is bypass you. It goes from back to front to a lone striker that we don't get any any support up to, and it comes straight back at us. The ball just keeps going back, keeps going back. We're under constant pressure. Now, as a midfield player, why would you come to us? As a striker, would you come to us with no real support or no real ammunition? Because I'll tell you now, the players we've got will score more goals if we give if we create more chances. It's the same. Listen, these the, the boys. I'm I'm telling you that the strikers we've got now give them more opportunities. And a lot of average, they'll score goals. But at the moment. So much pressure on the striker because he might only get that one chance in a game or half a chance in a game, and we'd expect him to score. But when that pressure's on you, knowing it is only going to be your one chance, it's a it's a whole different world. It really is. And you know, with the pressure of the supporters, with the pressure of everybody else, you know, heaped on these guys to score goals, we don't create any chances for them. And that's simply because we're set up in a negative way. Well, that's what I wanted to then bring bring Mark in, who's obviously very very patiently hanging on the sidelines here, to, for your reflections I'm, I'm on dead on deadline day. Along, by the way, <laughs> sorry. Well, he's, he's obviously never he's obviously never never heard the podcast before, where we can we can all talk as much as we like for the longest <laughs> possible time. But I'd be interested in, in in your reflections on deadline day. Obviously, you pulled in a good uh, a good what fifteen sixteen hour shift. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Now, I mean, the, the Chad Evans thing's interesting. I, I, I agree with John there. You, you know, you can't probably expect that one to uh, to go through when you, you're phoning up at 11 o'clock at night and expect Joey Barton to do you a favour. He's, he's clearly not that type of guy. Um, I think how that came about was more more the relationship between Chris Wilder and Phil Parkinson, their good mates. And when the Sunderland thing dropped down, Wilder will have uh, tipped off Phil Parkinson. They thought they'd try and get that done. But I think what hasn't come to light, and which what I will tell you now, is that they did try and get in a couple of strikers before that. Um, Leon Clark being one of them, uh, didn't want to come to Bolton. Uh, Rudy Gestead was another one, uh, didn't want to come to Bolton. Um, and so that really meant that the, that the evidence thing was more of a last gas thing, more than it, more than it being plan A. It was probably plan C, and it only really materialised once the Sunderland thing had dropped. So it's a, it's a little bit unfair to, to say that you know they, they put all their eggs in one basket because actually they, they did make some calls on the day. But it does exactly what John says. You know, it, it just reflects on how difficult it is to convince you know especially strikers on you know to, to, to come into Bolton Wanderers um, on the you know the money they can afford, and obviously with the the, the ongoing problems. Well, in, in terms of outgoings, then they managed to keep hold of Connell, which was given the way the morning seemed to be progressing, looked ever more unlikely. I mean, I appreciate that whilst he's on the contract he's on, it doesn't mean that he's completely wrapped up safe and sound in cotton wool for Wanderers. But how, how did that develop over the course of the day? Perhaps you could enlighten us on that one. Yeah, I mean, it, it looks 
really as if Brighton were the one that was were, were making any moves on it. They'd certainly checked him out for a good good long time, 18 months or so. Um, but mid-morning, <coughs> excuse me, the, uh, the, the, the contact down there in our sister paper said that they they pretty much said to Bolton that you're asking you're asking too much. It's not it's not not a price we're willing to pay. Um, we know that Southampton pretty much said the same thing as well. But I think Burnley have now uh, made their interest known, and they they may well uh, may well progress that one. One so one what that hasn't sorry one sorry Mark. What's what's Connell's contract situation at the minute then? If it it, it seems as though it, it's still possible that we might lose Connell. Quite yeah. easily, and, and for for not a lot of money, is, yeah, is well, he on he's a, an apprenticeship? He's on a scholarship. Yeah, he's on the he's a second uh, second year scholar, isn't he? Is he first year second year scholar? Um, yeah, so he's only got six months left to go, and so it it could be a compensation job if if a team were to uh, want to go down that route. Um, there are like set set compensation values, and it could get to, could get into a tribunal and all sorts of stuff, but. Um, I, I I fancy Bolton to keep hold of him at the minute. To be honest, I think he's he's pretty settled. If he's getting first team football as well, um, I think I'd be doing everything to try and get him onto a professional deal and, and tie him down a little bit, um, knowing that you know, as John was saying there, it's absolutely vital that you, you protect these assets and, and bring them through and, and use it. Bolton are going to have to be a selling club. We know that, and and if you can nurture Connell and, and make him into an asset, then that would be uh, perfect, really. Well, just quickly, it certainly benefit his career going forward as well to, to yeah. remain with us. Whether that be that as a as a parent club or as somewhere perhaps he he's on loan. I was certainly impressed with his his performance, the way that he was directing the midfield at such a tender age on Saturday. Mark, I'm sure you yeah. noticed it the same as a lot of people seem to have done. Yeah, no, he, he looks. I mean, I've watched him for the for the 18s and the 23s, and he's he's been that leader in that that sort of group, and that's why he's progressed so quickly because he has got that kind of maturity about him. Um, and I even at two 0 down on on Saturday, you know, he's he's going to the defenders, demanding the yeah. ball and, and pointing, and you know, that's that's fantastic. At, at that tender age, it's very easy to, to go missing. But actually, you know, him and I thought Connolly was pretty good as well on on Saturday. They both they both didn't shy away. So um, maybe they've uh, they've struck upon a little bit of something there to to build on. Mm, I think pretty. That's good, John. I was going to say Pritchard's done well as well, isn't he? You know, you know, sort of on the same path as Connell. Um, just thought he's been another standout as well. But yeah, go on, Chris. Yeah, I was just going to ask John if he's perhaps seen any parallels. Um, what I was watching the likes of Connell, anyone that he played with. Hey, you'd look at. It. I mean, he's obviously left-footed, so you'd look at Alan Thompson, look at Scott Sellers. Uh, you know, he's got a wonderful left foot, hasn't he? You know, he picks out a pass. You can put a great delivery in the box. Uh, I would like to see him further up the park a little bit, you know, a bit wider and further up the park and, and him possibly putting the crosses in for the strikers because I'll tell you what, he's put some delightful early balls in. Mm. You know, and I think if your strikers know the ball's coming in early, they'll start to make the runs and get on the end of these crosses. At the moment, I think it takes them a little bit by surprise when the actual ball goes in the box. His, uh, yeah. his, ball, his ball for Donaldson was sublime and I don't know whether... It, it definitely deserved... a. It deserved a better finish than than he got from Donaldson, but I don't know whether Donaldson was just surprised to see a ball come into the box as early as it did because we're quite used to to five, six, seven passes on the on the opposition penalty area before the ball goes in the box. 
Well, I think it's a problem when you look at us, right? If, if you if you look at the way we're set up, again, we normally play with a left-footer wide on the right and a right-footer wide on the left, yeah? So consequently, very rarely do we get to that byline and then cut the ball back, which favours the strikers. We're putting the ball in with a ball that goes in towards the goalkeeper. And if it's not the right ball, it favours the defender, favours the goalkeeper. I think when the manager switched it round uh, for one game, and it was against Walsall, uh, where Noon put in the crosses, didn't he, for McGuinness to score. Yeah. Uh, we looked a lot better because the balls all of a sudden, rather than having to check back onto their good foot and then put it in, it was a natural flow. And they were putting the crosses in on their good foot and early crosses. Consequently, the strikers were making good moves and we got our goals. You know, that, listen, that's not to say that it'll happen that way every week because it doesn't, right? But I think you've got a better chance you know, so maybe maybe Connell on the left again, knowing that ball's coming in early. Yes, it might have taken Donaldson by surprise, but I think it goes back to what I said earlier. That ball's coming in, and you can see it in the air, and he's thinking, "This is the only chance I'm going to get during the game." Yeah, and you fluff it because mm-hmm. you heap more pressure on yourself. There's nothing better than a striker that you've got to be willing to miss the target, but knowing in the next two or three minutes I'm going to get another chance. But these, these guys that are playing at the minute, once that chance goes, the heads are down thinking, that's me. That's a chance. That's my game gone. And that's the way it looks at the minute. Yeah. It does. It's lacking a certain amount of confidence. So when a when a 17-year-old with three games under his belt appears to be the most dynamic person in your team, I think it points to, uh, certainly points to wider problems. Will, leave it over to you. Yeah, yeah, no, I completely agree with that. I was just going to say similar to, to Chris's question, John. Um, you know, he, he said, you know, do you see anyone that's like him? Connell, um, I was going to ask, do you see anyone in the current squad that, or anyone recently that, that you'd liken to yourself? Hey, I mean, based on goals, probably not. Because yeah. <laughs> you'd have put that, you'd have put that away this afternoon. No, but if it was based on goals, I think he'd be, he'd be playing. Uh, you know, if he, if he scored a lot of goals, he'd be playing. You know, I think I think Connor Hall works really hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think obviously it's the obvious player that supporters shout for because because of the lack of goals and the lack of you know chances. I think you know with Connor's record in the twenty threes, he's done fantastically well. David Lee has got him honestly running through brick walls for David Lee in the twenty threes. He goes out to Accrington. And found it very difficult to break into their team, and you know he scored a he scored a couple of goals there, but never really got a run. And now he's back at the football club. I'm expecting him to get a chance, but I think it's going to be off the bench. Yeah, I can yeah. see him making an impact for maybe 15, 20 minutes coming off the bench because he gives you that high energy, you know, and, and he like he'll run in behind, you'll get, he'll, he'll make people make mistakes. Yeah, but he's not an out and out goal scorer. He's more of a, a sleeves rolled up hard worker that's going to really, you'd hate to play against him because he won't give you a second on the, if you're a defender, he won't give you a second on the ball. But, you know, I think the supporters out there are clamouring for him to be given an opportunity and he deserves an opportunity, but I've got my doubts whether he'd be a regular goal scorer in a championship. Yeah, I think there's definitely something there, but I think we're just yet to see it, aren't we, really? Um, last two questions, unless Tom had anything to add. Um, first one I'll put to you is, um, do you think, you know, after the business that was or wasn't done rather on deadline day, um, depending on a takeover, do you think we're capable of staying up? I think it's going to be very, very difficult. 
Uh, I mean, more, certainly more difficult than last year because I don't think we've got the depth. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think if you look at us now, you know, add to that maybe one or two injuries along the line, you know, and hopefully not too bad injury. But if you're missing players, we are really going to struggle. Now, if they take over what's to happen and happen soon, there might be an opportunity financially maybe to bring in somebody who's a free agent that would that would bolster us a little bit. Yeah. And maybe that would give us some hope. Uh, you know that obviously can't be done at the minute because the finances aren't there. But you know the quicker, hopefully, the t- this takeover, if it's going to happen, happens, and you know maybe there are two or three players out there that we could get in and, and that could make a difference. Definitely. Um, my last question. If we, don't, if we don't, we'll go down. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, yeah, my last question and last time I was on. Um, obviously, as a youngster, you know, <laughs> in the in the grand scheme of things, um, obviously I know you best, you know, memorably for that, you know, white hot Liverpool game. Um, but you know, what was your best Bolton memory, really? Poor. Again, less to so many because I mean, I think you take something from every game, and especially every big game. But there's there's games that maybe weren't as famous and weren't as maybe not as spoken about as much like Hull City away on a Friday night. Mm, we took, definitely. I think we took about eight and a half thousand fans to Hull, about two thirds of the ground, down to ten men, and we win the game. Uh, and we had like three pitch invasions that night. I mean, it was an unbelievable night. The, the atmosphere was great. You can look at the obvious ones. I mean, Liverpool. You know, growing up, Kenny Dalglish was my hero. And to go to Liverpool, because Liverpool was my English team when I was in Scotland, you know, because of Kenny Dalglish. And that night, we went into to Anfield for the first time I'd ever set foot in the place. We were running about that dressing room with little kids. And all I was doing, I was looking for something I could nick. I was looking for something I could steal as a memento. <laughs> I was going, I was trying all the pegs on the walls. I was trying to get, trying to get a loose peg to take it off, to take it home. Anything at all. Uh, to take home because I thought well, this will be the last time I'll, I'll never come back here again to play so I need to get something to take with me no need to remember And uh, but Bruce he let us run about for five or ten minutes and then sat us down and then kicked us up the backside and, and then got us focused And uh, but that was an unbelievable night I mean the, our support that night I mean like most of the games we went to and, and we did well and you know Highbury away you know the Liverpools and you know the Everton's away you know, Howells, you know, the supporters were unbelievable. Unbelievable. 2-0 down at Everton at halftime. We win 3-2. Unbelievable support. You say the Anfield, the obvious ones. You know, at the end of the game, the supporters were all there celebrating with the supporters as one. Yeah. Somebody tapped us on the shoulder. We turned round. The cop had stayed. The cop had stayed to a man. And as we walked towards them, they started applauding. Hmm. The cop applauded us off the park. Because we played football that night, and we, we footballed them to death. Well, David Lee footballed them to death. Uh, David Lee footballed, and that was the best live performance I've ever seen off a player that night. David Lee, he was unplayable, absolutely unplayable. I mean, he really should have scored five or six goals himself that night. But he ran Liverpool ragged, single-handedly, and yet me and Andy scored the goals and we get the headlines. But David Lee that night was unplayable. But the one, and I'll end on this one. The last game at Bundon Park. Yeah. To see some that, to see all these legends walking around the pitch, tears in their eyes because of what it meant to them that ground, and us playing there, having the privilege to play there, the last game of you know ever, and everybody wanted to score that last goal, no more than me, 
And again, I'd been struggling all the way through with that with that thigh injury. I was getting injections for every game. And I said to Colin before the game, I said, "Don't even think about taking me off. Don't. I mean, I'm seriously. Don't ever. Don't even think about it. Because I ain't coming off. You can you can put my name. You can put my number up and do whatever you want. But I'm not coming off. Simple as. And you know, to get that penalty right at the end, and and that would have done me. But then to get that tap and just after that, and, and to get the final goal." There was nobody prouder than me, and and after the game, you know, there was nobody prouder than Sir Matt because he wanted me to score the last goal as well. And he came up, gave me the big hug, and he was brilliant, cock and brilliant. What what a last game, and that that does me. Hairs in the back of my neck are standing up now, not cuddling me and saying, "Brilliant, cocker." That does me. Yeah. yeah. Fascinating. What a fantastic way, I think, then to uh, to cap things off. It's been an absolutely an absolute pri- privilege and an honour, John. I must say, from uh, from myself, on behalf of everyone that listens to the show, we've had some absolutely sensational insight into things that uh, have always interested us all, even even for the newcomers such as Will in his tender years. Um, it's been an absolute honour, mate. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much, John. Well- no, privilege and honour. Thank you, and I'm sorry I spoke yeah. too much. <laughs> thank you to both. Don't worry, don't worry. Thank you, John, again. Uh, thank you to Mark and, and Tom for both coming on as well. Um, no, and no. thank you to Chris for chatting our ears off. <laughs> so, yeah, thank My you, pleasure. Thank you very much for listening, everyone. You know where to find us all. So thank you very much for listening. This has been the Line of Vienna Suite podcast, episode 100. Set that fee.